0: Now Jesus was casting out a destructive power that was mute. And it happened when that power had left, the mute person spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, it is by Beelzebul, the ruler of destructive powers, that he's casting out these powers. But others, as a test, were seeking from him a sign as a proof from heaven. But since Jesus, he understood their ways of reasoning, Said to them, any kingdom that has been divided against itself is laid waste, and one house collapses on another. And if even Satan, the accuser, has been divided against himself, how will his kingdom possibly stand firm? That's because you're saying that it's by Belzebub that I'm casting out these destructive powers. Now, if I myself am casting out these those powers by Belzebub, then what about your own sons? by whom are they casting them out? Therefore, they themselves are going to be your judges. But if by the finger of God that I'm casting out these po- the powers, then the kingdom of God has arrived in advance upon you. When the strong man fully armed is guarding his own court, his possessions are undisturbed. But as soon as one stronger than him attacks and conquers him, The stronger one takes away the full armor of his that he trusted so much, and he goes about dividing the plunder from him. The one who doesn't stay with me is against me, and one who isn't gathering with me is scattering. When the unclean spirit goes out of the human, it goes through waterless places seeking rest. And when it can't find any, it says, I'll go back to my house that I went from. And when it has come back, it finds us swept and tidy. Then it goes and gathers around it seven other spirits, even more evil than itself. And when they entered, they make the person their dwelling. And the final condition of the human turned out to be worse than the first. Now it happened, at the time he was saying these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed the womb that carried you, and breasts of which you nursed. But Jesus in turn said, Blessed rather are those who are listening to the message of God and guarding it. Now as the crowd was increasing in numbers, he began saying, This generation is a is an evil generation. It's seeking for a sign as proof, and a sign won't be given to them except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign for the people of Nineveh, so the son of human will be for this generation. A queen of the south will be raised up in the judgment along with the men of this generation, and she'll condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, and look, something greater than Solomon is here. Men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation, and they'll condemn it, because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Amen.
1: I want to join in just welcoming all of you, including, as, as we want to do, uh, those who are online, and um, really uh, thank the praise team for the wonderful way that they've uh, led our service. I want to thank Alex, of course, for the for the beautiful reading that he's uh, just done for us, and um, and Denise and Christine for letting us into that life of the prayer group, and then leading uh, Denise leading us in, in prayer. This re- remember that this is um, the this coming weekend is the weekend of the men's retreat, and so I want to encourage uh, any to that that possibly can to participate in that. And uh, Kyle Swan is going to be here preaching uh, next, next weekend. Um, I hope that you have a, a, a copy of the notes for, this, uh, for today and that includes the, the, the scripture that Alex just uh, read and uh, the, the notes that I'm going to be following as we go through this. Um, I, I usually will go through basically reading the, the text. I'm not going to do that so much to, uh, at all today. Uh, so I want you to have the text uh, in front of you. If you don't have the, the handout, then uh, uh, please, well, you can raise your hand and someone will bring it to you. Uh, but also you can open your, the, your Bible to Luke 11, verses 14 to 32, and, um, and follow uh, along there. This is a, uh, a remarkable text. We just, la- uh, last week, we're in this. Area of of I, what I might say is great familiarity. It, it was a text that included the Lord's Prayer. It was a text that included the the parable of the Good Samaritan and it's Jesus' interaction with this this uh, expert in the law who who basically agreed with with Jesus and Jesus with him, but Jesus pushed him forward uh, more. And then it takes this this turn. It's quite a, this our text today is quite a remarkable text, and um, it it's. Setting is uh, given right at the very beginning as Jesus casts out a, and then what's that next translation? The Greek word is daimonion, and that usually gets, uh, comes across into English simply as demon. And, and that's, uh, you know, I don't have any great, uh, you know, conflict with, with that at all, except I think that, as I've said many times before, I think the words like demon and devil and so forth uh, often get a lot of medieval... Uh, uh, imagery uh, uh, brought around them so that they, it's, it's sort of hard for us to get back and think about what those, those words. So as I've done uh, before and as I do throughout this text, I've translated it rather than transliterating it instead of daimon as a, a transliteration of daimonion, uh, uh, I've translated it destructive power. It literally means in Greek a little god. A daimon in, in, in Greek is a divinity, and uh, daimonion is the diminutive of that, a little divinity, a little god. But in Jewish, uh, in Jewish uh, descriptions and language, they started using that for, for the daimonion, the little gods of idolatry, of the, of the pagan world, and then for various other kinds of things, all sorts of destructive power. And as one follows the daimonion and the unclean spirits and, and all of the various things that, that you find in the, throughout the Gospel of Luke, they take many forms. They take a form like this in our text where someone is mute and they take the form of uh, physical deformities that people have, a woman that's been bound by Satan uh, so that she cannot stand up as, as Luke will describe. There's others that seem like massive mental breakdown, uh, living among the tombs, screaming out day and night, and so forth. There are specific diseases that sometimes it seems like it's epilepsy or something like that. Or, again, as here, something that's much milder, uh, by definition quieter, like muteness. But... And sometimes, of course, there are those passages that talk about demons having this this astonishing, inexplicable knowledge of Jesus, that they know that he's the Son of God and so forth. Jesus, in this context, heals. He brings power, God's power, his power, against this little but destructive power, this daimonion, this little thing that is causing mutinous. The power has robbed a human being of the ordinary power of communication, and thus, as one would imagine, cut off a great deal of of community that comes with the ability to communicate. So someone, this was not an enlightened, very enlightened age that had special schools for any of these things, They uh, So a person more or less was ostracized Or very often ostracized If anything like this occurred Jesus heals this person And suddenly the person speaks And we have then the responses And as it turns out it's those responses That are Luke's primary concern in this It unfolds those responses The first one is the one that we most expect because we've seen it before and throughout the gospel that people are just simply amazed. And sometimes they cry out, how can this possibly be God has raised the great prophet among us or something like that. But here Luke just simply summarizes all that and says that the people are amazed. But then he gives two other responses that are, that are different and these raise up the issues. And the, everything is discussed in terms of these daimonia, these, these little gods, these destructive powers that I, I don't know about you, but maybe you're a person who talks about daimonia or uh, demons or destructive powers all the time. A lot of people don't. And so it, it's a challenge for, for them, for us, to, to think about this, to even to follow along what's being said in a, in a text like this. And I hope you'll follow along here. Uh, I'm going to try to, to carry it through. And I think you, you'll find that actually it's not all that Distant from us in, in many ways. The first of these, um, these responses that you get right right at the beginning is uh, there in verse 15. Uh, some people said, it's by Beelzebul. It's by Beelzebul, the ruler of the destructive powers, that he's casting out those powers. The ruler of the daimonia, that he's casting out the daimonia. So Beelzebul is the ruler of these things and he's giving Jesus the power to cast them out. Huh. So, but I don't know about you that my responsibility, response to even their response is, uh, who? What? Beelzebul? Now, I've heard of Satan, but who is this? Now, I know a Beelzebub uh, the. First, if you want the scripture passage, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, and a couple of repetitions after that, there's the mention of Baalzebub, Beelzebub, who is, that word means the Lord of the flies. And, um, and it's the name of the, uh, the Philistine god at Ekron. And there's the whole story about uh, the king of Samaria, whose name is Azariah, going down to uh, who's been injured mightily and by falling through a trellis. He's just come into his kingdom after his father Ahab died. His mother Jezebel is not ruling anymore. And so he's taken over and he falls through this trellis. He's badly injured and he wants to find out if he's going to live. And so he sends messengers down to Beelzebub, Baalzebub the Lord of the Flies, the God of Ekron in Philistia, and he wants to to know whether he's going to live, and Elijah encounters all of that. You can go and read the story there at the beginning of 2 Kings. We know Beelzebub because that has become a term that we use in our our language, um, most famously perhaps, or at least on a certain level most famously, in the novel by, by William Golding called The Lord of the Flies. Uh, about this uh, group of british schoolboys who are, uh, who are on a deserted island, and all that happens with them, I think maybe a little bit more recently we know it with um, at least I know it more recently it through bohemian Rhapsody you know and uh, hearing uh, hearing Bohemian Rhapsody in wayne 's world 's car uh, as they <laughs> sing out. Beelzebub has a devil set aside for me for me see I can sing Um, so Beelzebub is known and he becomes in Christian literature a leading fallen angel and so forth Now, this Beelzebul may be the original name of that god and that Beelzebul is just kind of a slanderous remake of the name. The name Beelzebul means Lord of the mansion, usually with the implication that it's the exalted mansion, the mansion of the skies, the mansion of heaven. And as one goes through this text and some other texts, Jesus plays on that, that idea of the Lord of the mansion. In Matthew 10 verse 25 he says, if they've called the master of the house, that would be a version of Lord of the mansion, Beelzebul, he's talking about himself, they called me Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household, namely his disciples? You called, he's called the ruler of the daimonia of these Destructive powers that can can destroy things in so many ways. So they're saying that what Jesus is doing is fundamentally all within the power of evil. They are not calling Jesus Beelzebul in this case, but they're called uh, Beelzebul and. Uh, Please forgive me if I misstate it and say Beelzebub sometimes. They're not calling Jesus Beelzebul, but they're saying that Beelzebul is using Jesus to advance his power and to convince people to follow a false prophet, namely Jesus, who's opposed to God's law and to the keeping of it rigorously and to God's people. Beelzebul allows some minor demons To be cast out In order to build up amazement at Jesus As a false prophet That seems to be the way That their their reasoning goes Then there are the others That have made a Sort of a false equivalence Between the argument of those against Jesus And Jesus' own work and what he's doing They're saying that If some can attribute the casting out of demons to Beelzebul, then in order to evaluate both sides, we need some sign, a sign that's clearly from heaven, something that's demonstrative proof of heaven that Jesus and, and what Jesus is doing comes from God. We want to be fair and balanced. It's like the signs by Moses when he went down into Egypt and God gave him the signs there. Note here that neither side, neither the crowds that that celebrate and are amazed at Jesus, nor those that are accusing him, saying that he's doing it by Beelzebul, nor those that are wanting a sign from heaven, none of them denies the idea of casting out daimonia, these destructive powers, nor even the idea that Jesus is really doing it. That was the way the world was, in their view, as they understood the world. It was the language that they used for mutinous. It was the language they used for being crippled. It was the language they used for a massive uh, mental breakdown. It was the language they used for a a variety of other kinds of, of things. In religion, we all live in a world of what we like to call tolerance in our day. Jesus thinks that he's doing the work of God. His opponents do not. They think that their rigorous understanding of the law of Moses and the sharp boundaries for the people of God are right. Jesus talks about them in terms of ancient villains like Nineveh and Sodom, as we had not too long ago in our our text. In matters of religion, we all know that no one's right or wrong, since it's all a matter of private opinion. Hmm, but it's complicated. And Jesus is, stands in the middle of that complication. Just as we've seen Jesus in that, the text that we had last week of, that had the Good Samaritan in it and so forth, Jesus was interacting with a teacher that we might expect to be on the opposite side from him. But Jesus agrees with his point of view and helps him to see the more radical implications of his own beliefs. As Jesus responds to these, these objections or these questions about who he is and what he's doing, Jesus shifts the language. He, as, as Luke says, he knew how they were thinking. He knew their reasoning. He shifts it toward the term Satan and away from Beelzebul, though he uses it a time or two, He knows that all the destructive powers, all of our little gods, are part of the same realm. Since Jesus' opponents know, at least as they think, from Jesus' teaching and practice that he's evil because he's not keeping the law of Moses as as he should, and that his teaching is destructive, then they reason forcefully that his works can't be a manifestation of God. Just go back and read for example Luke 6 verses 10 and 11. When they attribute his work to Beelzebul, it's a rejection of his teaching and his practices such as healing on the Sabbath, not fasting regularly as in chapter 5 verses 33 and following, forgiving sins, not following rigorous purity laws, etc. Jesus, in his response, shifts from the colorful Beelzebul to the more common term, the Satan. And notice that the article, and I've translated the article here in the text, the Satan, because it's part of it. It's, it's not a name, Satan as a name, like John or something like that. It is a title. It means the accuser. The slanderer. When it gets translated, that's the Hebrew word, and when it gets translated into Greek, it comes into Greek as diabolos, which means slanderer or accuse, sometimes accuser. And um, and then out of diabolos, because in re- these religious terms, we often didn't people often didn't want to translate them, but rather to transliterate them, we get diabolical and things like that, and it ultimately ends up with devil in English, as we have it. So and devil-like d- demon is sort of a transliteration rather than a translation of the word. So he turns it, though, to the term that more would know more commonly because this term, uh, the Satan, is especially known from the first two chapters of Job and a few other passages in the biblical text that this is not just a small conflict about this one person who has, was mute and now can, can speak about this little sort of personal demon that he had. This is a conflict between two realms, the kingdom of God and, the rel- and, the realm, uh, and God's realm and the realm of Satan. At Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, if you remember back to Luke chapter 4, Verses 5 through 7, there is that, as one of his temptations is given, you remember that the accuser, the diabolos there, led Jesus high up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, as Luke describes it. And he said to him, I'll give you all the authority of these with their glory because it's been handed over to me and I give it to anyone I want he's lying you then if you worship before me it'll all be yours Satan has a clear understanding is not likely to be divided against himself and that's Jesus beginning sort of argument in all of this He's not to be, not undermining his own work and his own purpose, his own realm of power and influence. We would never even think of him doing this, casting out demons, except that Jesus' opponents know doctrinally that Jesus, with his strange understanding of the law, cannot be from God, cannot be true, and therefore must be doing this by some other power and therefore they attribute it, they, have, they th- think they have no other choice but to attribute it to the destructive power of Beelzebul. The issue comes up only because Jesus' teaching is a problem for them and makes them opposed to him. But, as Jesus notes in verse 19, if you look there, Even his opponents approve of casting out demons and have people that they approve who are regularly doing that very thing. They see clearly that this can only be the work of God. Their own people who want to drive out destructive powers always see it as God's work and not as their own. They never attribute their work to Beelzebub. So Jesus says, what about that? Jesus' teaching does not exclude These others note Jesus doesn't deny that they're doing anything about the demons. (sighs) Anybody that wants to be casting out demons, if they can do it successfully, it's going to be by some power that's greater than themselves. And God may well use anyone that he wants to use in order to undermine the evil of the world even pagans, even worshipers of other gods, teachers with distorted or limited beliefs, since God values the areas of good that they share and that they can participate in. So this is more complicated, that there's a lot going on in this response. And then there's that second response there. The people that, well, they say, well, we've got two opinions, we need a sign. That's going to prove it one way or the other. That they want a sign from heaven as proof. That Jesus says they don't really see what's going on. And again, you think about a classic example of God's using signs with Moses as he goes down to in the Exodus. That great text that was the basis of so much reflection later on. Moses goes down and confronts Pharaoh, and he confronts those magicians in Egypt. And as, as the narrative in Exodus tells, those first signs that Moses is able to do, the magicians are able to do some sort of facsimile of them as well. But ultimately, they, as the signs go on, they could make no convincing duplicate. They recognized that Moses' signs were far beyond them, even though these magicians represented all the occult powers of Egypt and Egypt's imperial gods. In Exodus 8, 19, they told Pharaoh, hmm, this is the finger of God. And the smallest finger of the true God in this image is stronger than all the imperial gods, the little gods of Egypt, all their daimonia. Later, we're told in Exodus 31, 18, that same image comes up, that the Ten Commandments were written on the tablets of stone by the finger of God. In Psalm 8, verse 3, we're told that God's heavens are the work of your fingers. The work of God's fingers in this idiom is not only a sign pointing to God, it is God's work itself, God's involvement in God's world. What Jesus is doing, as you read there, by the finger of God is more than a sign. It is the reality of God's work. It's the beginning action embodying the kingdom of God. So that Jesus says in verse 20, but if it's by the finger of God that I'm casting out the powers, then the kingdom of God has arrived in advance upon you. It's already playing itself out right here in you and among you. Even before the ongoing work of Jesus is completed. <sighs> so, two choices. Well, three choices. Just be amazed Rejected? What a sign. Jesus goes on. Verse 21 and 22, he he develops a short analogy here. He he uses the image of the strong man, a strong man. And um, this, this idea that the power of evil, the power of Satan, the power of Beelzebul is very strong. He's very strong in the experience that of our lives. We certainly know that in the course of our history. We can see evidently uh, a symbol of his whole realm played out around us as Satan lives uh, in so many manifestations among, among us. We see that power. We see him in full array. As Jesus describes him every day in his own stronghold of human empire, structures of power and violence, our own alienation from each other, people doing wrong to each other, controlling each other, distorting their religion, distorting their politics, distorting distorting all the structures and personal sins that we know. When all those structures of evil are working on their own terms, when Satan is sitting strong in his mansion, or Beelzebul is sitting strong in his mansion. The strong man is sitting there in his mansion with his armor on, guarding his stuff that turns out to be plunder. All goes by as he wants, and his possessions, as Jesus said, are undisturbed. But the problem arises when someone who could it be, someone genuinely stronger comes. Jesus casting out the destructive powers is really that stronger power, the realm of God, attacking and conquering Satan in his realm, person by person, freeing one person to regain their real humanity. It's not a real contest, though. Because Beelzebul, who seems so strong, or Satan, who seems so strong from our little point of view, has no real strength compared to God, as God is working in Jesus. Jesus simply throws the the thing out. The strong man is disarmed, and the plunder that he's guarding, namely people, they're freed from his grasp. And so it's a very hopeful story there. What Jesus is doing cannot be resisted by that strong man that you're so afraid of that's holding you captive and so forth. The power of God is is there to free you and so forth, all of it, to free, cast out a demon, to free people from all kinds of things. But as it plays out, and especially as it moves on into verse 23, it's, Jesus begins to give uh, another analogy. The irony of the story is people. It's us. The real plunder that the strong man holds is people. The strong man imprisons people using their own, our own, desires for power and pleasure and self-aggrandizement, etc., etc., God created you, even me. God created people in God's image as God's beloved creatures. He created us with a freedom that God genuinely values. It's unique so far as we know in the universe. In Jesus, God frees people from Beelzebub's enslavement, so that they can return to their true beloved identity. But, and here's where that strategy of God breaks down, he never forces them into his own service. Hmm. Jesus gives this analogy that follows of the destructive power. Cast out of the human being. And he uses, it is, Luton tells the story, he uses the article in both of those so that it becomes sort of like par- a paradigm. And it's told as kind of a little paradigmatic tale. It's, but it's, as you read it, read along there, as the, the, the destructive spirit is, or the unclean spirit goes out of the human being. It goes through waterless places seeking rest, but it can't find any. And it it goes back, goes back home. It's not enough for the destructive power to depart. That particular power considers that human as my house. It's like we said, the Satan, the strongman, grips us, enslaves us using our own desires, our own desires, our own desires for power, for control, for pleasure, for rebellion, for whatever it is, just, just to be contrary in order to enslave us. And so when the, that, that unclean spirit, that demon goes out, he still feels that that's where he's at home. He was thrown out, and by the stories that are around it, clearly by someone stronger. He wouldn't have left on his own. But that stronger one doesn't act like the destructive power would. The stronger one, you see, the stronger one, in this case here, Jesus, who casts out the demons, God in larger picture, doesn't force himself on the human, on any of us. Amen. Here the the human, as we just see this little story that Jesus tells, hasn't followed what Jesus said in verse 23, that the one who doesn't stay with me is against me, and the one who isn't gathering with me is scattering. It's important to stay. It's important to be with Jesus. He hasn't Done that and so when the power tries to go back he finds the place swept and tidy and evidently empty but the destructive power in our little story uh, Jesus little story doesn't want to be thrown out again so he gets more evil friends others more evil even than himself as it says and reoccupies that person as their residence. They come back, and they aren't so reticent about enslaving the person. It's somewhat like that oft-quoted saying uh, often attributed to G.K. Chesterton, the one who forsakes believing in God doesn't believe in nothing. You can't just stay empty, swept, and neat. He believes in Anything, And so all of the, the demons come swarming back. Unless my life is filled with the powerful reality of God, as seen in Jesus, I'm vulnerable to anything, even the worst distortions of human life. My deliverer, your deliverer invites you, invites me to see his love for what it is. As we saw in that last passage just before this, to love God with your whole being, with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to imitate God's love by loving your neighbor as yourself, that will fill up your life. Your life will not be just swept and tidy. It will be filled with new discoveries about God and his grace, his sacrifice, his ongoing Explorations of our ongoing explorations of life in Jesus. Explorations of Jesus as the face of God. Beautiful, but sometimes messy situations of service and love toward neighbors. Neighbors that we made our neighbors by moving close to them, as we saw last time in Jesus' story. You'll be staying with Jesus in this. Gathering with him. Then Luke turns to a, a rather ironical moment, we might say. There's a certain woman in the crowd, and she cries out from the crowd something that is clearly true. Bless, a blessing on Jesus' mother. Uh, she uh, says there, Blessed is the womb that carried you and breast that which you nursed. And <laughs> Jesus surely should just say, thank you, that's very nice of you, I appreciate that very much, I, my mother was is really wonderful, uh, but he, he, he doesn't, he, the blessing, as you just think about it, if you remember the language of the gospel of Luke, it's in a sense fulfilling what Mary herself said, Back in chapter 1, verse 48, that from the now on, all generations will call me blessed. And here's the woman that's calling her blessed. But Jesus shifts the blessing. It still certainly includes Mary. But it expands broadly to all people who, like Mary, hear God's word and keep it. Guard it as a treasure as a guide, as a commitment of life. In in contrast to the strong man who's guarding his plunder, they are guarding God, as it were, guarding God's word and learning from it and letting it flow in them and through them and out from them into the world around them. They listen to the Logos, the message, and it becomes the defining treasure of their lives. They guard it. So that its grace and love may come to fill the the largest hall in the house, so to speak. The smallest corner of their being. And so that they may have the profound motivation of that in shaping all that they become. But then in the last verses of of our text, Jesus comes back to that desire for a sign beginning in verse 29 and going through the end of our of our text. If you think back the desire for a proof of some sort of proof, a sign is proof. You go back to chapter 4 where we've already been uh, earlier when Satan invited Jesus to receive all the kingdoms of the world. It was the again the third of 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 the tempters, the, the satans, the, uh, the accusers, test for Jesus, that he, um, that he tells Jesus, you, 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 you really need to make sure that God is real. And he, the way he does it is, he, if you remember, he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, jump off, God will catch you, won't he? He says he will in the scriptures. Put him to the test. Make sure he's real. If you're going to go into this, you need to evaluate things clearly and make God prove himself. Hmm. It marks what Jesus describes as the evil grip of that strong man, the evil generation, the generation that lives thinking that it has such tests for God. I think so many of us in our generation, in our time, really resonate with the idea of the strong man. The strong man that you know he's there because he's holding you prisoner, so <laughs> to speak. There's no doubt about, about the, 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 the power of evil in our world. And we resonate with that idea of the strong man. Just look at the world's tendency toward authoritarianism in so many forms, in politics, in many other ways. We don't imagine God, a glorious God, a powerful God, as a a wimpy God who's going to wash our feet. That's the reason Peter didn't want him to do it. Not because he didn't believe in Jesus, but because he did believe in Jesus. He thought Jesus was too good for that. He doesn't want some, we don't want somebody who's going to get himself killed for us. We want somebody who's powerful, who's going to drive out the evil and take over and force everything to be good. We're willing to die for a God or a nation, but not vice versa. If God is not going to force us, not going to make us over, then we're going to treat God as an employee, so to speak, as our assistant. God's message and God's work must submit to our test. We test God and decide if God's worthy of our approval. Make him prove himself. How can anyone in this age of science believe anything that you can't prove? If we can't evaluate and judge the proof for it, it's just foolish to believe it. We're in charge. We're responsible. We've got to make the decision. If he doesn't prove himself, we'll go with our own gods. We know how they work. They're more attuned to our desire. But God is not our hired employee. We don't get to put God to the test and evaluate him and decide whether he's God or not. The more appropriate language is that we recognize God as God. That's sort of where the idea for the title of this, this message came. God is beyond us. Beyond even our imaginations. God is above, he is within, he is through, he's behind, he's before, he's after us. God is the very basis of our existence. This is the something greater. It's not the power to enslave and to force. There, evil does it all the time. Satan does it all the time. The demons do it all the time. The, The destructive powers do it all the time. It is the God who gives life gratuitously. He does not have to give us existence. He does to make us beloved, to make us in his image, to give us his life that we can share in that life, to give that, that, and allow that to stand, and not, why not, not forces. But oh God, I make so many mistakes. Force me. No. If I force you, you won't be human anymore. You won't have that fundamental freedom anymore. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to lead you. But I'm never going to force you. And so we, when we see Jesus, we look into that face. We see God and recognize God as God. This is that something greater that Jesus talks about in those last verses he uses the analogy of Jonah and and the the queen of the south we better known to us as the queen of Sheba and so forth and draws on the parable of Jonah and Jonah simply goes in and cries out that Nineveh is going to be destroyed and lo and behold Nineveh transforms they they totally change their way of thinking and they repent the queen of the, she, queen of the south, not called the queen of Sheba in our text, the queen, a queen of the south comes and she comes to Solomon and listens to Solomon and is blown away by what she hears of what Solomon has to say. They respond. They hear and respond. They recognize something that's there. And that's the fundamental thing from really from this point on throughout the gospel is going to be at play. Can you... Recognize God Can you recognize the work of God When Jesus gets to the temple That's the question with which he's going to Confront the priests The high priest and all of them in the, in the Temple can you recognize God and what God is doing And it's some, a question that echoes Down through the ages Right down to this moment Can you recognize God And Jesus that something Greater that something Stronger That's something that is life-giving. That's something that is eternal, beyond all our little gods, all our own daimonia, as familiar as they are. Can I learn by his word that we've been studying, by, by his message that is embedded in all of that? Can I act? As Jesus taught that expert in the law in our last text to do, can I learn to act in such a way as to embody that self giving love toward others? And the answer is yes, you can. I can. We can. He gives us freedom, and we can join with him we can recognize him. we can't control him we can't make him do what we want him to do but we can recognize God and recognize his love and respond to that love and live out that love and embody that love that's what this is about slavery or freedom And freedom in this context is a challenge. It's not more difficult. The slavery destroys our lives and messes them up on all sorts of levels. But the freedom is difficult for us to get our minds around. And difficult to live out, to embody the love of God toward all who are around us. Yes. The answer is yes. You can do it. I can do it. We can do it. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, you know those powers that are around us, pulling at us, seizing us, grasping us, not respecting our freedom, but pushing us, but using our own desires and our own weaknesses and our own desires for power and pleasure and all those things in order to enslave us. We hear your word of forgiveness and freedom, your word of release. We see what you've done in Jesus. Help us, Heavenly Father, to not stay empty as you help us, but to be filled with you filled with you by loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To be filled with an everlasting, for our lives, everlasting mission to others to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, Heavenly Father, that we may know the joy of that freedom, the delight, the beauty of it, and that we may live in it through our whole lives, sharing in your life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.